Welcome to Mount Isa Birth Stories. This is a podcast for women who have birthed in Mount Isa to share their stories. We hope these conversations can help our fellow pregnant sisters feel more prepared for their birthing time. If you would like to share yours, please contact us on social media at Mount Isa Birth Stories. There is strictly no naming of our local nurses, midwives and doctors. Please note nothing in these episodes is to be taken as medical advice. Please see your healthcare provider if you have any medical concerns. Enjoy the episode. In today's episode, we have Dr. Rachel Reed. Some of you may be familiar with Dr. Reed's very well-known blog, Midwife Thinking, or perhaps you have seen her keynote speeches at national and international conferences. She is widely published in journal articles, books, magazines, and websites. She is an author, researcher, and a senior lecturer of midwifery at the University of the Sunshine Coast. There have been discussions in previous episodes and also locally here at Birth Meetups about birthing placentas, vaginal examinations, and inductions. Dr. Reed shares with us some valuable information in regards to these hot topics and explains some of the nuances that inevitably come with them. It was an absolute honor to speak with this giant of the midwifery world. I am so grateful that she was so generous with her time this past Saturday morning. Um, I really hope you enjoy our discussion. So thank you so much for coming on to talk to us today, Dr. Reed. Um, we live in Mount Isa, it's a small little town and we have little birthing groups um, starting to happen. And a discussion that is often brought up is the third stage. And um, a lot of women seem to not be aware that there is like options for the third stage, like physiological, active and the modified. Um, but then there's a lot of confusion um, about perhaps like maybe it's not so safe to have physiological all the time um, and all of that. And I just thought it'd be great to have you try to explain to us um, the third stage and how it kind of works and what the options are. I love you've got a, um, an awesome blog, Midwife Thinking, that I've referred to before on the podcast. And you've got such a brilliant article about the third stage and perhaps active um, management being sometimes the best option. So I was just wondering if you would be able to share some knowledge and wisdom with us. Yeah, I think a good place to start is what happens if we don't do anything, I guess, and what happens if we don't do anything and it goes well, so physiology. Mm -hmm. um, and you probably notice I don't use the term third stage because I don't use the term first stage or second stage. I know that's the normal framework that our culture talks about birth mm -hmm. from, um, but it actually doesn't fit with research evidence about how labor and birth work or about how women experience it. The only distinct stage that you can time and define, I guess, is the third stage. So the birth of the placenta, um, because that's very obvious once the baby's out mm -hmm. until the placenta comes out. So I talk just about um, birthing the placenta. But that's me being. And it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if I kind of talk through what happens if, if a woman was birthing physiologically, so that's a healthy well woman with no interventions, then um, the birth of the placenta is just like a follow on of the, the entire birthing process. So the baby would be born, her um, oxytocin levels are at really high levels, like peak levels at the birth of the baby. Mm -hmm. um, and she would, if we weren't interfering, the, the woman would actually take a break. So the, the baby would come out and the woman would kind of stop, have a look at her baby, take a breath, pick the baby up, put the baby to her 
breast and the baby is very cleverly, it's still attached to a cord. So there's the umbilical cord going into the placenta still and the placenta is still attached to the uterus. So it's basically forcing the mother and baby to stay together because that's what needs to happen for physiology. So then this uh, amazing process of mother-baby interaction starts where the baby and the mother are getting to know each other, the smell of the babies, um, mm -hmm. you know, getting to, through the mother's um, system. She's smelling her baby, baby's smelling her, the baby's heading to the nipple through smell and sight. And all of that is just increasing the oxytocin levels in the mother's system and the baby's. Yeah. And the baby's kicking its little feet on her uterus to try and um, find the breast and crawl to the breast. And that massages her abdomen and her uterus. And, and all of that increases oxytocin and causes the uterus to then start contracting again mm -hmm. um, in order to birth the placenta. So then the placenta is born. And it's usually what I've noticed attending births where um, we're not doing anything is the baby comes out and there's a space in the contraction pattern while mother and baby kind of start to stimulate that oxytocin mm -hmm. between each other yeah and then the contractions start again and it's usually within a half an hour that the percent is born okay. and then we wait until the mother says something and it's usually around about another half an hour before the woman then kind of says oh can we clamp the cord okay <laughs> and then we yeah. clamp the cord so that's that's how it would happen physiologically and physiologically, just for mums who are not aware of that, what does that mean everything's happened like in quotes naturally, there's been no interference or what, how do you define physiologically? Yeah, so in terms of defining, there's lots of definitions of birth. So there's a definition of, the, the definition normal birth is often used in clinical guidelines. Mm -hmm. And what that means is different across different guidelines. And I keep away from that because normal birth, you know, that, any birth is normal and to call a birth not normal is not helpful for a woman and actually normal birth is cesarean you know it's normal for a woman to have yeah. a cesarean so then the other option is natural birth um which you know pathology and complication are natural so you know this coronavirus is natural yeah so with birth um most of the time a natural birth will result in a healthy mother and baby but sometimes nature decides to throw a curveball mm -hmm. and we end up with complication and pathology which is actually the whole point of midwives and obstetricians yeah. <laughs> to try and catch that curveball yeah um, so what i tend to use is physiological which is not great because it's a mouthful um, mm -hmm. physiology refers to an an organism like a body functioning in a healthy way so yeah. a, a normal healthy way so i call um physiological birth a birth where the body's functioning in a healthy normal way mm -hmm. and sometimes actually that can include intervention but when we're talking about the birth of the placenta yeah and if we're talking about natural hormones like oxytocin mm -hmm. and that's the kind of key is that we want all those naturally produced hormones to be present to birth the placenta yeah. and in our, in our birthing culture you know mm -hmm. that's a very small minority of women who don't have synthetic oxytocin given to them or significant interventions that would disrupt that hormonal play so you know any major yeah. pain relief will interrupt that mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah so um yeah when we're talking about what you just described then with the baby on the chest and the mother like going off the mother's cues of like, okay, I'm ready to cut the cord now or birth the placenta. That's all with the physiological third stage. So if there was a mother who planned on that, but then things changed, she was induced 
um, there's like epidurals involved and synthetic oxytocin. Would you like, would you recommend a physiological third state, um, physiological birthing of the placenta in that kind of situation or? It's really, it's really different. It's complicated for healthcare providers. We all get confused and, you know, just recently, um, published a study about care provider actions around birthing the placenta and you know clinicians are all confused so it's not surprised that surprising that women are confused so mm -hmm. what basically what the research tells us is if you had a birth with no intervention so no major pain relief mm -hmm. you have birthed with your own hormones and you are not separated from your baby and you're able to do that scenario that i talked about earlier where it's just mm -hmm. woman led mother and baby led mm -hmm. then if you then do an intervention to birth the placenta like give an injection or pull on the cord you actually can cause a hemorrhage it's actually risky so for that group of women mm -hmm. it's safer it's less risky i guess i don't like the word safe because something's safe yeah. it's less risky to just follow your natural body and birth your placenta yourself however yeah. that's a, that's like a, a very small percentage of women in yeah. maternity systems so if any intervention has been done that disrupts the woman's hormones mm -hmm. then the woman's hormones aren't going to be functioning in the same way after the birth of the baby. So I don't tend to recommend, it's more like you need to consider that, that particularly with induction, mm -hmm. um, if you've had artificial oxytocin, which the brand name is Syntocinon, through your labor, then what can happen after the baby's born is not only you, you need to carry on using that artificial hormone to finish the job, but not only that, if you've saturated your uterus with all that synthetic hormones, sometimes it won't then respond to an increase of, of the synthetic hormones. So you're, you're more likely to hemorrhage, which is why women who've had inductions are more likely to hemorrhage. Yeah. So the research that's been done, so globally, the standard is that all women should be having their birth, their placental birth managed by active management, which is an in, basically an injection of oxytocin yeah. after the birth of the baby. So that's the global recommendation. And that recommendation is based on research that has been carried out looking at women in all risk populations. So mostly women birthing in hospitals, mostly women who have had intervention. Mm -hmm. so we know that for that population of women, having an injection um, improves their chance of not having a hemorrhage. You know, they're less likely to have a hemorrhage. Yeah. And so the injection is when the baby comes out, the healthcare provider just does the injection in the side, hey? Yeah, and that, that, that varies how they give it. If they've already got an IV drip going, so if, mm -hmm. for example, if the woman's been induced, sometimes they'll just add it to that. Mm -hmm. um, or sometimes they'll give an injection into the thigh. And mm -hmm. um, the timing of that injection is interesting because what the research tells us is that it doesn't really matter when it's given. It can be given after the placenta's out. It's okay. just it's just giving it that changes that reduces the chance of hemorrhage. So it's perfectly feasible to wait until the placenta's out. Having said that, if you've had an induced labor, you might not get the contractions to get the right. placenta out. Yeah. So, so it's giving that injection. That's the important thing. And the timing is where care providers get themselves all yeah. confused. Yeah. And you know, when some healthcare providers pull it out, um, the placenta is that called cord track like um, continuous cord traction or like when you want to birth the placenta um, like why do some people pull them out and why do some people just let the mother um, birth that by herself is there a um, like a standard that happens or yeah could you explain a bit more about the cct continuous cord yeah. traction and yeah 
So, um, so in terms of kind of medical definitions, I guess, of birthing the placenta, there's physiological um, management or where's physiological birth. And if you're supporting women having physiological birth, you do expectant management, it's called, which is where you just kind of wait and you just step in if you need to. <laughs> whereas if a woman's having um, a actively managed birth of the placenta, it's called active management. So this is where the care provider, you know, does things. Mm-hmm. in case anything happens and there's three traditionally there was three components of active management now bear in mind these all came into play before any research was done to say whether they were good or not it was just a way of speeding up that part of the labor so that women could move through the hospital system quicker that's mm-hmm. kind of why this happened so there's three components first is the um, injection of the um, they call it a uterotonic which makes the uterus contract and then um there's clamping and cutting of the umbilical cord and then there's pulling on the umbilical cord, controlled cord traction to pull the placenta out. So those are the three components of active management. Okay. So um, since after it was implemented, there's now been a kind of under, there's been changes in practice. So I think it was implemented, what, 50s, 60s? Can't remember. Mm -hmm. Um, And since then people have started to question different elements of that standard approach and and it's in recent years, people have, for example, with the cord clamping, there's huge amounts of evidence now that babies really need to not have their blood redistribution um, interfered with. So once the baby's born, a third of its blood has been circulating in the placenta. And basically the placenta sends that blood back into the baby's body, which is, is one of the ways in which the baby's lungs actually prepare themselves wow. to breathe. And babies who have had immediate clamping have you know around about up to a third less blood circulating in their system which babies are pretty clever and what they do is they pull all of the blood from their extremities and into their you know the important bits so which is why we have little blue hands on babies because their yeah. circulation is trying to pull in the blood and we also have long-term issues now known so there's enough evidence mm. so that care providers should not be immediately clamping cords on any baby they should wait until the cord has gone white which means it's finished transferring the baby's blood and mm-hmm. um, that's the that's really the optimal way to do it so yeah. care providers know this so you've now got care providers going okay so i'm not going to immediately clamp the cord so they're taking that part of the three elements out yeah. um, and then pulling on the cord there isn't good evidence to support doing that the world health organization have basically said if you've got care providers who are not very skilled and they certainly shouldn't be pulling on the cord regardless of whether an injection has been given mm-hmm. um, because a lot of care providers were taught to I was taught to do that I was taught you know inject injection clamp cut the cord pull that's mm-hmm. like that, that, that. so a lot of care providers are still just pulling the placenta out mm-hmm. um, and that's possibly because they haven't seen other ways of doing it because we're pretty as care providers we just do what we know and we don't change unless we experience something different often yeah but there's no reason you know a woman could quite legitimately ask for I would like to just push my own placenta out because the woman can do that yeah. and she might need to change position if she's kind of lying on her back and it's it's come down and it's just sat there she might need to push a bit yeah. um so she might actually think it doesn't matter just somebody could pull it out yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm busy with my baby I don't want to do all of that stuff uh-huh. but it, it's um a woman can do that you know it doesn't really matter if someone pulls your placenta out or not it's still going to come out because there's kind of only one way out of the vagina yeah 
with C-section mums, um, are they fine to do delayed cord clamping in a in the in theatre once the baby's born? It can be done. Um, once you're having surgery, then it really kind of is a, a negotiation with a surgeon because mm-hmm. they're responsible for for what's happening. You know, and the anaesthetist, they're responsible yeah. for making sure you and the baby survive the surgery. I know a lot of obstetricians are doing that, are doing um, delayed cord clamping at caesarean sections. That is definitely something if you know you're going to have a caesarean or you think you might, like if you're having an induction with your first baby, good chance you're going to have a caesarean mm-hmm. um, outcome. So think about that and ask, ask for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that obstetricians are doing it, it is possible. What you also need to consider with that is when you have a caesarean, you get. So when the placenta is managed the same way as a cesarean in that, so once the baby is, is brought out, mm-hmm. then the anaesthetist gives the injection, usually through the IV, so the woman often doesn't even know she's had it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also give a boost of antibiotics into the IV as well, okay. standard. So you need to consider that anything that goes into the, into the woman's body Mm-hmm. while the baby's still attached and the placenta still functioning as in sending blood back to and from the baby that that will go into the baby's system so i guess you need to decide whether it's yeah right so you can try and negotiate to have that oxytocin um injection delayed my guess is <laughs> yeah. that an anesthetist probably wouldn't be happy to do that because it's an entirely different scenario the uterus has been opened it's its ability to contract has changed so it's yeah, a very different situation yeah wow it makes sense so with um home birth mums we don't have home birth here in mount isa but um there is the odd mother that will fly a home birth midwife in how do those women like when they um <clears throat> when they say that the standard should be like active management, like they recommend that worldwide, um, what do mums at home do? Do they get the injection? Is that able to happen at home? All of that. So it's usually, it's up to them. So I've worked in the UK where home birth was just part of the public system um, Mm -hmm. and it was very different. So over here, usually there are publicly funded home birth um, um, systems, but Mm -hmm. generally speaking, it's a private practice midwife. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are women who have the resources to engage a private practice midwife, which is not all women. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually what happens is there's, an, there's a discussion around, OK, so this is how birth works. This is what would happen if we do nothing. Mm-hmm. What do you want to do? Um, and what we also know is that for that group, so if they have a home birth without any intervention, which is generally what happens at home birth, because we don't have all the big, <laughs> we don't have the big drugs. <laughs> yep. that, that after... So for that group of women, the research that specifically looks at them, mm-hmm. if they have an injection, it increases their chance of hemorrhage. Oh, wow. So because the, the research has been done on women birthing in hospital who are having interventions, so then the yeah. World Health Standard has been given injection because most women have intervention. But then there's been some studies that have just looked at women in birth centers mm-hmm. who have been birthing, have a physiological birth, have care providers who know how to support the environment after birth to make sure that hormones are functioning and for those women if you then actively manage their percentage they're more likely to hemorrhage wow that's so interesting um it makes like sense i guess because you're kind of changing the way the birth was going like it was going physiologically then you start getting in there and changing it wow messing with their nature when it's doing it well yeah yeah wow that's amazing um another thing too that's been mentioned in a few episodes is uh vaginal exams vaginal examinations in labor um i think 
like I just assumed before I had babies, you need to have a finger go up there and figure out how dilated, <laughs> like dilated you are. Um, what's the go with that? Like some people just refuse it, but I suppose as a mother, if you don't know much, I'm like, why would you refuse it if they're recommending it? Could you just explain a bit more about vaginal examinations? Yeah, so vaginal examinations are once again a kind of a continuing, something that's continuing for history that was just implemented without really any evidence and just carries on. So until fairly recently, now I've got this on my blog post, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, yeah. I think it's like 70s that we started doing routine vaginal examinations. So prior to that, it was very much care providers were told, do not be putting your fingers in women's vaginas mm-hmm. unless there's a really good reason, i.e. you think there's a complication and you want to work out what position the baby's in. Mm-hmm. So it was very much a no-no. And then it became, once the um, Friedman's curve came into play, which was um, a graph based on 100 women's cervixes in the 1950s that they then just rolled out and said, everyone's cervix should be doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to pl- plot birth on a graph, then care providers started doing routine vaginal examinations so they could plot what the cervix was doing onto this graph, making the assumption, which makes sense, that as the cervix, op- if, this baby, if the cervix is opening, then labor progress is happening. So mm-hmm. that was based on a very, um, an idea that labor is about the cervix opening. Mm-hmm. So then fast forward. So since, since all of that happened, we now know that what happens during um, labor is the uterus contracts, which we know, and it's the, the uterus contract, the cervix is part of the uterus. We kind of like to segment things off, but it's just, just the opening to the uterus. And when the uterus contracts, and it is a contraction. It's like you, you know, doing a bicep curl. But every time you do the bicep curl, the muscle fibers don't completely relax back down, so it just gets shorter and shorter. So you would end up, you know, with your, your hand, the per, permanent bicep curl. So that's what's happening to the the uterus is just pulling up, pulling up, and all of those muscle fibers are being pulled up to the top of the uterus, right at the top, ready to. Be powerfully push the baby out so it's kind of reforming itself I guess is what the uterus does in labor it makes itself smaller so the babies have to move out and it makes itself really fat at the top to push the baby down and part of that is the cervix get pulled out of the way but whether or not you can feel that depends on whether the what position the baby's head's in for example if you've got a baby who's got its back facing out and a really nicely tucked in head then it will hold the cervix open so when you feel the cervix it will feel like it's you know dilating up because it's going over the baby's head but if you've got a baby who for example has its back to its mom's back or is not quite in the pelvis yet it'll feel like the cervix isn't opening because it's not yet but all the work's still happening right at the top so that once the baby moves down into the cervix it'll suddenly you know hold the cervix open and it'll look like it's suddenly opened so what we know from there's been lots of research on what cervixes do now since that um 1950s research and what the research tells us is what we already know which is that cervixes just open at all different rates mm-hmm. so for most women by the t- once they're ha- having really strong regular contractions they'll have a baby within 12 hours so that bit of the chart is correct mm-hmm. the baby will probably be out within 12 hours of strong contractions not always but mm-hmm. usually um, but what the cerv- women's cervixes do if you plot them on graphs is that some women's cervixes will open very quickly and then just stop and do nothing for a long time and then the baby will come out other women will maybe just look like their cervix is stuck at two centimeters for hours and hours and hours and all of a sudden once the baby comes in and holds it open 
because mm -hmm. all of that work's already been done. It's suddenly completely open. Wow. So they don't, they do not open one centimeter per hour in a nice neat pattern, which would be helpful, but that's not what happens. Yeah. So we know that. So we, so we've got research to show that cervixes don't tell us much about labor progress. Um, we've got research that's, uh, you know, that, that tells us that our parameters of labor progress aren't very helpful because most women don't fit that graph. 50% of women having their first babies will not fit the graph that we've given them to have birthed within this amount of time with their cervix opening you know according to plan um, which tells me that the graph's wrong not that women's bodies are wrong mm -hmm. and so we've got all of that going on we've even got so queensland health have got a patient leaflet they call it and um, it's available online so you go to queensland health and um, maternity guidelines um, you can look at their guideline for um, normal birth etc but they've got a parent information leaflet about vaginal examinations and they quite clearly state in that leaflet that a vaginal examination cannot tell you when your baby will be born. Mm -hmm. They also tell you that different people doing it will get different results. Mm -hmm. um, and they, you know, say there are other ways to see whether or not you're progressing in labor. So it's actually quite a good leaflet, mm -hmm. evidence-based, and women need to be given that in the antenatal period so they can decide whether or not vaginal examinations or something they want to have as part of their labor because once you've had one and you've got the number it changes how mm. you feel about what's happening you know you might be an hour away from having your baby but your cervix might only be three centimeters dilated and you'll now think that you're only at the beginning of your labor mm. versus being told oh you know eight centimeters dilated and you think great i'm gonna have a baby soon and it doesn't happen <laughs> for yeah. so it can really just so it's like a bit of a false um false reassurance about what is or isn't happening mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I know that that's how we've defined labour progress in our culture for so long that that's often what women ask for and want. Mm -hmm. um, and also bear in mind that if so, I'm talking about physiological birth there or birth without interventions. Once you're having an induction, mm -hmm. then there's a little bit more reason to be having a vaginal examination, as in this, because mm -hmm. you, you need to assess progress a little bit more um, closely if you're having an induction, and that's it's one method of assessing progress is not very accurate but it's one so I guess women okay. need to consider what kind of birth am I having and you know do I want vaginal examinations to be part of that yeah and is that true too for epidurals like um do they do you kind of need to have a vaginal examination in an epidural well you, you don't need to it's it's much more difficult with a woman with an epidural is not having a physiological birth now because the epidural completely alters the hormonal physiology which is why I've particularly for first-time women, the chances are the labour will stop or slow down. So you'll then end up having you know, a drip to speed things up with the artificial hormone. Mm -hmm. So that's, pre that's pretty standard for a, a first-time mum having an epidural. So when you have an epidural, that happens, but also it kind of relaxes all of the muscles in your pelvic floor. Mm -hmm. So the pelvic floor, the muscles in your pelvic floor, um, as the baby comes through, it actually, they actually guide the baby. They, make, they kind of make the baby rotate and they guide the baby through the pelvis. So if they're relaxed, you're more likely to get a baby who kind of gets wedged in a strange position because the, mm -hmm. the tone in the pelvis isn't guiding the baby through. So, mm -hmm. so with it, you've got to consider that. Of course, you cannot do a vaginal examination without consent and women can absolutely say, I don't want one and mm -hmm. we'll worry about it if the baby doesn't appear, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or if the baby looks stressed, then maybe do one to see what's happening. But other, other than that, I don't want one. That's absolutely 
that's mm-hmm. a woman's choice to have one or not. But it makes more sense to have one. There's more of a reason, not necessarily for progress, but to you know check that the baby's not getting itself into some you know position that's going to cause a, a problem further down yeah. the track. You've written a book too. Um, why is it why induction matters? Yeah. Do you just want to kind of point out some just basic briefly, um, like a brief overview of induction and maybe some things women can think about and research before they accept a recommendation for an induction or things like that? Yeah, so induction rates across Australia are up 33%. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an average. So you you know you have some hospitals that have around 40% wow. rate. So induction labour is increasingly common. It, it goes up every year. So every year um, I have to collect the stats because at uni I teach um, students and part of that as we look at what the national statistics are for things. And every year I just add another percentage or another wow. two percentages as it goes up. Mm-hmm. So induction is the norm. So this is what the problem with calling things normal birth. Induction is a normal birth. It's normal to have an induction. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, re- the rationales, the reasons for having induction keep changing the parameters and they keep adding things on that now need an induction wow so it used to be um, and i guess there's two categories of reasons for induction one is complications so this is where what you are saying is at this moment in time this mother and baby are at risk so things like preeclampsia where there's a pathology happening and we're worried about the well-being of mother and baby there's um so there's complicated pregnancies where induction is offered and then there's um variations and that's the most common that's the one that's changing is there's increasing um, variations are being included into induction so we used to have post-date pregnancy which is a variation so for most women going past their due date is very normal but for a very small number of women it's not mm-hmm. um, so induction is offered was offered at 42 weeks and it's going back and back and back okay then women who are considered advanced maternal age which is 35 which is actually a lot of women most Mm. women are having their first babies at around about 30 so once they're having their second third that's a hell of a lot of women heading into advanced maternal age Mm -hmm. so inductions are offered for post-date advanced maternal age and they're they're offered for all kinds of things that just like it depends often on the care provider like high bmi high Mm -hmm. blood pressure um you name it, it seems to be that induction is offered for it. <laughs> yeah. Is it reducing the rates of like adverse outcomes or less induction and like reducing stillbirth and things like that? No. Mm. No. And in fact, in, uh, so in some cases, so for example, for advanced maternal age, mm-hmm. when they've looked at the outcomes for induction for that, they've found no difference in. So the, the rationale, I guess if a woman's facing an induction decision, the question is, what is the rationale for the induction? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's usually stillbirth or you know something that's really significant if it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so for example, advanced maternal age, the stillbirth rate does, and this is general because individual women you know, aren't generalized, generalizable. Mm-hmm. Um, the stillbirth rate goes up very slightly compared to a woman who's under 35. So because of that, it's still less than 1%. So because of that, they go, okay, well, if we induce them, we'll stop that from happening you know we'll get the baby out before you know there's, there's the chance the stillbirth can happen even though you know 99 point whatever percent of women will not have that happen mm-hmm. so they just do routine induction for 100 percent of women just to kind of catch the naught point whatever yeah um, but what what they've done when they've looked at that is they've then found that inducing doesn't reduce that rate 
which is interesting. So when that population of women induction doesn't reduce that rate, even though, you know, you think rationally it would, which is why they started doing it. Mm -hmm. And what it does do is increase the chance of the woman having a cesarean section mm. and increase the woman's chance of having forceps or fontouse. Now, what's interesting is with the cesarean section, once you've had a cesarean section, you have a scar on your uterus, you now have an increased chance of stillbirth with the next baby. Mm. And that chance is still under 1%, but that chance is now higher than it was because you were an older mother. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What a mess. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so this is great for women to know, I guess, because sometimes you're not faced with induction talk until it's going to happen. So I suppose it's one of those things to just start looking at as you get more, you grow and become more and more pregnant <laughs> approaching that 40 week mark. I mean, um, hmm. like it's important to kind of be aware of those things. Yeah, it's good to be aware of what's happening where you're birthing your baby. So what are the, what's the normal policies and practices where you're birthing your baby? Yeah. And really, if it's a Queensland Health facility, they should be following Queensland Health guidelines, yeah. which mostly are actually all right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's some things that actually aren't research-based and con or contradict UK mm -hmm. guidelines, for example, but they're, they're mostly all right. And anyone can access those guidelines online. So, you know, mm -hmm. that's a good place to to start and have a look at the recommendations yeah. um, and you know then do a bit of research around whatever reason you might be heading into the induction talk but know what is normal in your hospital mm -hmm. the um, gold the gold coast university hospital have just got an induction um working party so a group of midwives realized that it was it was 40 percent induction right there wow and thought we, we need to kind of slow this down because you know we can't 40% of women surely don't need to have their babies induced. Mm -hmm. um, and what they started with was just trying to get the clinicians, so the obstetricians mostly who are making the decisions to do inductions, to just follow the Queensland Health guidelines around when induction should be offered. And they reduced the induction rate by 7% just doing that. Wow, that's huge. Mm. Amazing. And like, so because I'm guessing as an obstetrician, you're worried about stillbirth and these things and you don't want to take a risk with anybody. Mm. Um, like, but they're protected, I guess, in a sense, like if you're following the guidelines and you're following that, like you are, you're not doing anything out of, you know, the norm. So no, and really you have an obligation as a care provider. So we're all mm. registered obstetricians and midwives and now the midwifery registration is we have to provide woman centered evidence-based care. That's kind of the bottom line obstetricians will be i don't know whether they use the term woman-centered or it might be patient-centered but they have to provide evidence-based care so it's not even enough to follow a guideline if it's not evidence-based because you could still get sued yeah and that's often you know you often need care profile worried about being sued for not doing an intervention mm -hmm. because there's not a lot of understanding from the consumer's perspective that they could sue for doing an intervention if there's a bad outcome. Mm -hmm. So for example, with induction of labor, you know, I know two women who have lost their babies during an induction of labor mm. because of the induction of labor um, rupturing their uterus. Mm. Now, so that's a risk that can happen during, it's a lot, it's very unusual risk, but it can happen. Um, now, if those women could then prove that they wouldn't have had the induction if they'd known that risk, Mm -hmm. they could you know they could sue an obstetrician for that so it's interesting what they get scared about being sued for mm -hmm. um tend yeah. to be scared for getting sued for not doing something versus doing something yeah. that wasn't necessary or doing something well yeah yeah 
Oh, that's so interesting. Thank you so much for um, sharing your time with us today. It's um, been great. And I think a lot of women will get a lot out of um, everything you've shared. So thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. I hope so. <laughs> it's all very confusing. I can't make it clear because it's not clear. Oh, it is. It's just, and it's like everyone's so individual, like with their own like things going on in their bodies and risk factors. And it's just so hard to have blanket kind of information thrown out. But um, that's been so interesting, everything you've shared with us. It's great. And you've got Midwife Thinking blog, which is just an amazing resource um, for women and midwives. I love it. So thank you for all you do. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for this podcast. It's, you know, it's really great that you're putting this out there and sharing information with women. So I hope you enjoyed the episode and maybe learnt a thing or two you weren't aware of before. She's such a wealth of information. I can listen to her all day. And I hope my fangirl nervousness didn't um, annoy you all. I could not even string a sentence together. Um, if you wanted to listen to more of Dr. Rachel Reed, if you just go to your podcast bar, search bar, and just type in Dr. Rachel Reed or Rachel Reed, there's heaps more episodes she's done on other podcasts as well. Um, also, before we go, I just wanted to let the Mount Isa women and men, because dads are welcome too, um, that our local doula, Lani, she's holding another positive birth meetup this coming Sunday, the 15th of March at 1pm. And it's still held at the same place, which is Daisy's studio, which is called Inspired Flow. And if you have the coronavirus, don't come. <laughs> okay, I'll see you later.